On this episode, I interviewed Katie Jones, who is a senior performance coach at University of Louisville. The main topic of this podcast was how to mesh sports medicine and sports performance. Katie, being an athletic trainer and a strength and conditioning coach, we really spoke specifically focused on the college system, but it does apply to anyone within the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So we first kind of, again, talked about the gap between the athletic trainer and the strength and conditioning coach in the college system. We talked about the kind of the cons of the college system and different things that uh, Katie thinks could be improved upon to kind of work across the full spectrum from pers- from rehab to performance. We then talked about um, what a- how ATCs and strength and conditioning coaches can learn from one another. We then kind of moved into more what is reconditioning. So Katie talks about what how she defines reconditioning, what they do specifically at Louisville. Then she goes and talks about how you, you know you can always modify uh, training and how she likes to do that with her athletes and how she likes to incorporate again just the whole rehab to performance across the full spectrum. We talk about how she develops different criteria for return to play and then how she has a meeting with her staff, as well as how to communicate with the coaching staff and athlete when they usually want a timeline. And then again, we finish off with talking about some ways schools that don't have all the technology can implement um, these sort of criteria and reconditioning principles. So great episode. Here it is. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Noic Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood, and today I have on Katie Jones, who is the Senior Performance Coach at the University of Louisville. And today's topic is really about reconditioning within the college system. Um, so really appreciate you, appreciate you being on, Katie. If you first just want to talk a little bit about your background, um, kind of your education, current position, and then how you got there. Awesome. Well, first off, thank you, Patrick, for having me on. I, uh, I've listened to a few of your podcasts now, and I'm really excited to be a part of it. So thank you for having me on. Uh, So a little bit about me. I went to Central Michigan University uh, and to be an athletic trainer. So I played sports all through high school. I decided to kind of forego my career. I had some smaller schools looking at me, but I decided I wanted to go to a larger school. I was in a really small town at the time. So I went to Central Michigan University, got my athletic training certification and my degree. And I went to Florida Gulf Coast, where there I was an intern for two years. I worked with uh, beach volleyball and men's soccer. And then I started my graduate assistantship program. So I got my master's from there in the next year and a half. My first full-time job was with the Philadelphia Union Academy. So I left there as soon as I got my master's degree, I went up to Philadelphia. And that is where I met, sorry, my dog is getting in the way here. That's where I met my first really influential mentor. And that was Bill Knowles. So when I was hired at the Philadelphia Union, athletic trainer, I was interested in being in a weight room. I had been lifting on my own for a little bit and was just kind of just starting to get um, back into being interested in it. And so when they hired me, they said, we want an athletic trainer, but we also want someone who's, who can be an athletic development coach. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. And they were like, well, it's someone who's going to be interested in being in a weight room. You should be interested in performance, but you don't have to love it. Like you don't have to be a strength coach with us. We want you to be an athletic trainer, but we, we also want you to be willing to learn some new things because we require our athletic trainers to help us develop all of these athletes. We had 120 athletes. We had six teams with the Philadelphia Union Academy. We had one strength coach. 
So because we had the budget to hire more athletic trainers, Bill Knowles was like, we're going to make them hybrids. We need more strength coaches, quote unquote, we need more athletic development coaches. So we're going to take these athletic trainers and we're going to teach them a thing or two. And then basically we're going to multiply the amount of people that we have available to, to develop these kids. So that was really what kickstarted my career into performance, even though it technically wasn't performance at the time, it was athletic development. And that is performance though. We were strength training, we were doing change of direction, we were doing speed work, we were doing gymnastics. I had to learn how to teach gymnastics and we were just, you know, playing soccer. So uh, I was there for two years and that's when I started to get interested in strength and conditioning. I went and got my CSCS certification just because I, I felt like I needed a little bit more credibility with what I wanted to do in the weight room. I was becoming much more interested in how do we get kids stronger? How do we keep them on the field a little bit better? Because as an athletic trainer, I was only taught, hey, they're hurt, get them back on the field. Um, and I kind of have seen a lot of the athletic trainers that were coming through and learning from Bill, let's keep them on the field. Let's get them back on the field and let's keep them on the field. And I wasn't really sure how to do that. I wasn't sure how to work with a healthy population. So uh, while I was there working with him, the second most influential or second in, in succession uh, mentor that came into my life was Tina Murray. And so she popped in because she had heard that Bill was taking these athletic trainers and turning them into performance coaches, essentially. And so she wanted to see how that was being done. She wanted to look at our facility. Our facility that we were working in, uh, it was split into two halves. One half was a fully functioning gymnastics floor. And the other half was a strength training side with you know rubber flooring and we had a rogue rig. And down the middle was a trampoline tumble track. And so she wanted to just check out like, what is going on over here in Philadelphia? Because there's some crazy things happening. So she, she just came to check out the facility, came to talk to Bill, see what he was kind of doing. And I don't think she ever planned on meeting me. I happened to be at the time uh, helping Bill with one of his professional athletes. So I was, on the, uh, I was on the floor coaching one of the athletes while she was actually in the facility. So I talked to her for maybe five minutes. And I shook her hand. She was like, hi, Katie. Where do you want to be in five years? I was like, I don't even know you, man. You know, what kind of a question is that? And then I thought about it and I said, you know what, Tina? I want to be a performance coach at the Division One level. I loved being Division One when I was at Florida Gulf Coast. I want to get back to that level. I want to win a national championship. And she was like, send me your email and I have a job for you. And three months later, I was hired and I was at the University of Louisville as a performance coach. But with the idea of, you know, helping some of these injured athletes get back on the field, help educate our other strength coaches, our other um, performance coaches on how to work with these injured athletes and kind of be that gray area between typically sports medicine and performance at the University of Louisville. So that's where I am currently. I work with women's lacrosse and women's basketball. I've been here for three years and heading into my fourth season. Awesome. Great, great journey. And uh, like I said, that's going to be blending perfect to the topic of um, having the ATC and the SNC uh, CSCS certification as well. And then, uh, so like I said, mainly the college system here, but it's definitely going to apply to anyone else kind of in the sports medicine and sports performance, just thinking about it as those two different separate things, sports medicine and sports performance versus your athletic training and strength and conditioning if you're not within the college system. But I guess first let's dive into just the strength and conditioning and the athletic trainer within the college system and kind of talk about I guess, like in my opinion, at least, and what I've seen, um, and I know you're you're changing that at Louisville. And if we can talk a little bit about if you've seen it uh, differently throughout the college system, um, but I guess just 
having the major gap of the athletic trainer and the strength coach and just you'll have the alki you were saying and 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 the former podcast the athletic trainer is in the athletic training room and the strength coach is in the in the weight room so i guess maybe can you talk about what you've seen on that first and then we can kind of go into maybe reasons why that is and, and then ways to change that i guess yeah absolutely so I think in the college setting, it's probably the most pronounced. And I think the, the verbiage that a lot of people use is siloed, right? The athletic trainers are in the athletic training room. The performance coaches are in the weight room. The head coaches are in the facility. And so everyone has their own location. And at the University of Louisville, the geographical differences between where everybody is located is definitely you know, the biggest problem and the biggest uphill battle that we're currently facing. Because at the Philadelphia Union Academy, you know, where we turned athletic trainers into athletic development coaches, I, my, my athletic training room was the weight room. Now, in the weight room, I had a gymnastics floor. I had a trampoline. I had, you know, med balls, dumbbells, barbells. I also had some modalities, some complex machines, things like that. I had a training table right inside um, the weight room that was collapsible so I could get it out of the way when I needed it. I could pull it out when I needed it. So my facility was in one room. And additionally, when I went into my office, I shared an office with the other athletic development coaches, whether they were athletic trainers or strength coaches. So we, we all sat down, we were desk mates, we always had open lines of communication. If I had a question about an athlete, I would just, hey, Eric, what's going on with this kid? Oh, okay, cool. As opposed to now, you know, at the University of Louisville even, and I think it's going to be like this at most universities, we're trying to give our sports like the coolest facilities, right? Brand new weight rooms, new, like new locker rooms, new everything, but they're not all in the same location. So, I mean, my life... Both of my sports are luckily out of the same facility. They're out of the keeper facility here at University of Louisville. And so lacrosse is outside on their field. Basketball is inside in their gymnasium. However, my weight room that I, my office is in is across campus. And the athletic training room is in the facility, but next to the uh, gymnasium in between the two sports. So I'm in one spot. The athletic trainer's in another. The coaches are upstairs. The athletes are in the locker room. And from a just geographical standpoint, it's tough. It's tough to communicate. And if I have a question, I can't just go, hey, Yoshi, what's going on with this kid? I got to call him. He's in the middle of a treatment. He's got to go run and get his phone. He's, we miss each other all the time. So then I try and pop in before practice. And he's usually got athletes in there at that time. So geographically, it's really tough. And I think we need to maybe start moving towards. Sorry, my dog found a squeak toy that I'm going to take from him real quick. Go find something else. Um, you know, we need to move towards the, not every sport is going to need their own facility. Although it looks really cool. Like it's great, but from a performance and a support staff standpoint, it's really difficult when every sport has their own facility. And I work with multiple sports. So a lot of other performance coaches and strength coaches in, in the collegiate athletic setting, you're going to have more than one sport, unless you work with men's basketball and football. Typically you're going to be in multiple places at once. And I'm lucky enough, both of my sports are out of the same facility, but a lot of the, all the other uh, performance coaches at the University of Louisville, they've got tennis over here, they've got swim and dive over here, they've got track and field back there. So just getting from location to location, because we have so many sports and we don't have enough performance coaches for there to be one per sport, that, I, I, I mean, unless you put everybody in the same big facility and you make this Olympic village, it's never going to be the same as when I was with the Philadelphia Union Academy. We had one sport. 
it was soccer. We just had six teams. So it's lucky to kind of put everything in the middle, put the fields around us, and now the athletes and all the staff and all the support staff can be in the center. And then from there, the sport kind of you know expands out, whereas now the sports are expanding over here, the weight room's expanding over there. So that's definitely, and I think it's like that at most you know college settings is, you're not going to have an athletic training room attached to a weight room, attached to whatever sport it is that that team is trying to work, you know, that, that, that performance coach is trying to work with. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, kind of identifies two different problems there. Um, as you mentioned, one just um, being, I guess, overworked or just having multiple teams to do with. So you can't obviously focus just on one sole one and then the geographical location expanding and so on. So again, maybe more of a time thing and not having enough time to deal with all that. And I guess, I guess what kind of like, like I said, really opened my eyes to all this was just like my experience from moving to Australia and seeing their more high performance model where they don't have the college system. And most of the time they are working within one sport. So they have a high performance model set up. And, um, and as you were saying, and identified that you don't have the ability to just focus all on one team. You have so many different teams to focus on that are not within the same specific location so i think yeah those i guess are two big points to identify and maybe improve upon but what what do you think about the education wise for strength conditioning and athletic training at least in the um what you've seen uh, i don't know um if if you think that it promotes kind of that um the crossover at all or what to do about trying to figure out how much an athletic trainer does versus an C does and how they can fix the middle part of that. Right. And so from the education standpoint, like this is like a can of worms we're going to open up right now. <laughs> so I didn't know what I didn't know when I was becoming an athletic trainer. Right. So I thought I was okay at rehab. I knew I was pretty good with my hands in terms of like manual therapy and, you know, doing this or that. But my exercise selection was pretty limited. And because when I was in school, I had rehab one and two. Rehab one was upper body, rehab two was lower body. And both of those classes were taught by an athletic trainer who went and got his CSCS certification. And let's be honest, the CSCS certification, you read a book and you take a test. You don't have to work with anybody. And I have that certification. And I'm, I'm not saying it's not accredited. It is, but you don't have to work with anybody in order to get it. And it was very clear based on my education that that athletic trainer who went and got that certification had never been in a weight room. He had never taken healthy athletes and made them faster, stronger. He had never taught speed. He had never done those things. He just got the certification and was like, okay, well, I'm going to teach rehab one and two, and I'm going to teach some of these exercises that I learned. And so I learned how to move and how to lift weights from an athletic trainer who got a CSCS certification who never spent time in a weight room. I never learned plyometric progressions. I never learned... The difference between hypertrophy, strength training, power training, how do you do those in order? How do you cycle back through? I mean, I learned basic sets and rep schemes, right? Three by 10. Listen, if you do three by 10, everyone's, they're going to be happy, you know? So, um, you know, and, and I never learned really functional muscle patterning. I learned very isolated muscle patterning. Okay. So someone's got uh, low back pain. You're going to lay them on their stomach. Their feet are going to be hanging off the back of the table. You're going to do a hip extension on one leg. And you're going to put your hand on their erectors and on their glutes. And if their erectors fire first, you've got a muscle patterning problem. So what you're going to do is you're going to continue to isolate the movement. You're going to continue to work on hip extension in a pronated position, 
with an athlete just laying there until they get it right. And that's what we're, we're going to do that for four to six weeks, three sets of 10 until it, fig, until it fixes itself. And then when it does, the athlete, they should be better. Well, I never learned how to do that when the athlete's standing. So unless you have a swimmer, that's not really a great plan, right? So based on the education I was given, you know, that's, that's what I was taught. And so that's what I did. And so at the time, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know that that wasn't very functional if I was going to be working with a soccer athlete. I didn't know that, in all honesty, my rehab sucked. Now, I, I'm going to put that on myself. I needed to be better. I needed to ask more questions. I needed to do more research on my own. But I didn't even know I sucked until I walked into the Philadelphia Union Academy and I saw somebody who was really good at it. And I went, ah, oh, I got to learn from that guy. So I was lucky enough to kind of be in the right place at the right time to turn my career around and get better at that late stage reconditioning that I had no idea that was even a thing. I just thought you did three by 10 until they had less pain and then you give them the strength coach and then they get better and then good job, pats on the back all around, you know? So from the education standpoint, you know, I just, I would have rather have learned that a lot of that late stage reconditioning stuff from a certified strength and conditioning coach or strength and conditioning professional who worked in a weight room with healthy athletes because rehab is so focused on the injured athlete and the injured body part that like I didn't know how to work with the rest of the athletes so I only knew if their hip hurt how to do hip extensions internal external rotation I only knew how to do straight leg raises terminal knee extensions I only knew how to attack that area I didn't know how to take an athlete onto their feet and teach a proper squat pattern I didn't know how to take them onto their feet and teach a proper hinge pattern. And like, I didn't even know the difference between a squat and a hinge. I just thought that was called movement. So from an education standpoint, I think that is something that was lacking in my education. And it's funny enough because the last podcast I was on was Mike Robertson and my athletic trainer, Yoshi, was, he walked up to me the next day and was like, that was a great podcast, but how, how do we change it so that you and I learn more in school before we ever get into the real world because he went to Michigan State. I went to Central Michigan. So we essentially got the same education. And this was before athletic training switched over to a six-year degree. It was a four-year degree at the time for both of us. So we both went and got our master's on our own, but he was just like, yeah, I, I never learned that there was three different kinds of plyometrics, long response, medium response, and short response. And I certainly didn't learn that there was a progression that you were supposed to do. I thought jumping was jumping. Oh, and by the way, I've been calling jumping hopping because I didn't know jumping and hopping were two different things. So yeah, just from an education standpoint, you know, what I learned and who I learned it from, I think there is a potential to maybe get a little bit better at that and getting athletic trainers in a weight room with someone who spends time in a weight room working with healthy athletes would be very beneficial because, you know, as I've, I've mentioned on multiple different podcasts, like there's a difference between rehab and reconditioning right? Mm -hmm. Reconditioning is the performance model for returning an athlete back to athletic normal, right? And so that is a preparation mindset. I'm preparing an athlete for what's about to come. I'm going to prepare them for their sport. I'm going to do the best I can to prepare them for the demands of the sport, right? Rehabilitation is the medical model for returning an athlete back to play. And it's protection based. It's protect the joint, protect the injury, put a brace on it, Protect, protect, protect. And so you have two opposing sides. You have the reconditioning model and you have the rehabilitation model. I was taught the rehabilitation model because I was taught by other athletic trainers, physical therapists, and team physicians. I was not taught by the strength and conditioning professionals who have the reconditioning mindset of preparing the athlete. Like, hey, listen, 
you can protect him all you want. The demands of the sport are still the same. They're still waiting. In between those white lines, the demands of the sport did not change while you were out with an ACL for nine months. So how can we protect that athlete but prepare them at the same time? Because again, those are two opposing forces. Those thoughts like how can you prepare them for something if they're in a brace and they're not allowed to do stuff? What can they do in terms of reconditioning, getting them ready for you know whatever is sport that they're returning back to? Okay, so you think, uh, I guess, a big proponent that could help out is having the, the opposite professional help teach that kind of crossover spot from their viewpoint so you're not getting just the profession you're going into's viewpoint on something. Yeah, because I, I just didn't even have that perspective, right? Yeah. I thought I was doing the right things because the people who were teaching me that were telling me this is the right thing to do. And it's not that it's the wrong thing to do, but I just thought that that was the only way. Mm-hmm. I didn't know there was two ways to skin a cat. I thought there was just this way because this is what everyone told me. And until you can kind of look up and look out and you're, until you're given another perspective, you don't even know what you're missing, right? And so that's kind of just the, I didn't even know what I didn't know until someone showed me. And then I looked up and I was like, oh, there's a lot more over here that we can work on. I'm still going to do these things, but there's a time and a place. Mm-hmm. I need to do these things also. And there's a time and a place for those too. I had just been going down this hallway for so long that now I'm starting to make the shift over. And it's like, I, I wish I had known that when I was in school. And I think that is probably the next step is getting performance professionals more involved in the learning process. And if, I mean, that's, I've, I've discussed this with uh, my athletic trainer, Yoshi, but that's a KD accreditation program, like a problem there. That is the commission on accreditation for athletic training education. Right. And so at the moment, I don't know if we're going to be able to, to break through that battle, but if we can get more athletic trainers to listen to people like me and know that there is another side and go, oh, you know, I didn't even know that, they can actually join performance mentorships, right? Like at the University of Louisville, we've had physical therapists come through and do our, you know, University of Louisville performance mentorship where they learn plyometric progressions. They learn, you know, strength training, um, you know, and how to build an annual plan and how to progress that way and how to do periodization. And once you know how to do periodization for, an in, for an, a healthy athlete, Periodization for an injured athlete is so easy because it's such a shorter timeline. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe just opening the eyes and, and just getting it out into the universe that there are mentorships with performance departments who would love to have you and would love to teach you these things. And once you learn how to do speed and apply all progression and the difference between basic strength and maximal strength and power and strength speed and, and all these different velocity ranges, right, that I didn't even know was a thing. Then you can start to take that and build it into what you're already doing with reconditioning your athletes, and you'll have a really well-rounded idea of what you've got to do. And once you can speak the language of a performance coach, you can have a lot better relationship with them. When you speak two different languages, it's hard to have that relationship. Some people still have a great relationship with their athletic trainer and their performance coach, despite that big discrepancy in language. But I can speak to the performance coach, and I can speak to the athletic trainer, and, and I can kind of spanglish in between the two. So the more time you can spend or the more energy that you can getting mentored by somebody who knows things that you don't know, that's going to expand your overall knowledge base. It's going to make you a better practitioner. 
Yeah, and then as you said, can you can apply what you've learned. So athletic trainers can apply kind of those the strength conditioning um, performance pr- principles within the rehab, and then strength coaches can maybe figure out how to modify certain exercises when some sort of injury comes up. So maybe some sort of like that crossover, um, as you mentioned. I guess you also talked a little bit about um, what they can kind of take, uh, like athletic trainers can take from strength conditioning. But I guess do you have – what do you think being both yourself, like an SNC can like the biggest point they should take from an athletic trainer and then the opposite, like the athletic tr- trainer can take from an SNC or performance coach. Um, if you haven't kind of already touched on that. Yeah. I mean, so I think athletic trainers can learn from the performance coach, you know, just the late stage reconditioning and late stage meaning like, okay, we've got some asymmetries that are starting to close up. So they're starting to become more equal bilaterally. How do we get them sprinting? I didn't say jogging. I said, how do we get them sprinting, right? Mm-hmm. There is a difference between the two. How do we uh, make sure that their power output from their lower body is within 10% of pre-injury levels, right? So learning like what that means, learning what a KPI is, a key performance index is, and how to measure and test those things because it is more than just about goniometer measurements and single leg hop testing. They do have to get back to a certain level of performance metrics before we would feel comfortable putting back on the field. This is where you were before you got hurt. And if you've got a lot of discrepancies and you're not quite where you were, you might look like ready on paper, but from a functional standpoint, you're nowhere near where you need to be. So if athletic trainers could learn anything, it would just be the late stages and understanding that if their power output is really low, it's going to take time to get it back higher. And if you don't check that until the very le- like the very end, the very last checklist is like, what's their maximal strength? What's their power output? And you're like, oh, I didn't know about that. It's like now we still have four more weeks because it's going to take us a while to get that back. So learning a little bit more about the late stages. And then also I touched on it a little bit in the beginning. You know, I would love for more athletic trainers to learn how to work around an injury, not just with an injury. Right. And that's that goes against everything we've ever been taught. We've been taught it's the knee, get the knee. Go, up, go above and below, so get the quad, the hamstrings, and the adductors, and get the calves and the soles, the gastrocs, and maybe look at their feet. But what about the other leg? What about the core and the upper body? Can we train those while we're doing you know, stuff in the athletic training room? How can we work around the injury, not just staring at the injury? And, and vice versa. So I think strength and conditioning professionals should learn a lot more about like the healing process because a lot of the, the problems that seem to pop up is like, Performance coaches understand that we need to work around injuries and it's very rare to have a team that's completely healthy that doesn't have anything pop up, right? I mean, I work with basketball. I get ankles here and there. I get sore knees and I've got to like on the moment, okay, how are we going to work around this? And I think most of us know, okay, if their knees are sore, we're just going to hinge today. We're not going to bend the knee a whole bunch. We're going to tell you to go see your sports medicine professional, go get some treatment and we'll see how you feel tomorrow. But when someone comes in with an example would be like a, like a grade one MCL sprain. I don't think strength and conditioning professionals understand why you should not squat them to 90 degrees, right? They just hear like, well, we can squat. Like, of course we can squat. I'll just do a body weight. And it's like, well, if you understand the healing process, you understand that when the knee goes into flexion around 90 degrees or below, you're going to be opening up those MCL fibers. And if they're trying to heal and you're continuing to open them, you're actually doing more harm than good. So understand the healing process of maybe some some common injuries that are in your sport and why you wouldn't do some things in the weight room. Not just because the athletic trainer said don't do that, because the athletic trainers don't really know what you're planning. They just go, no squatting. 
Well, okay. Hey, I can do some quarter squats with them. I can do some lateral squat, you know, maybe some split squat stuff where I just go partial range of motion. And if you understand why they might've said no squatting, you can have the conversation of, I understand you said no squatting, but I'm going to keep them above 90 degrees and in pain-free ranges of motion. And I'm going to keep it super light. Are you okay with that? And most of the time the athletic trainer will go, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds great. But if you don't know why they said that, then you're just going to be like, well, they said no squatting again. Like, what do you want me to do with this athlete? You know? So understand the healing process and then do your research on the current rehab processes of some of your surgical athletes, right? If you, if you get an ACL and you're not familiar with the medicalized ACL, you know, re, like the model of their rehab, then you're not going to understand where the athletic trainer is coming from. They have to follow along at some point because they do have to report back to the team physicians, the physical therapists. There might be a reconditioning specialist that's on their staff. They have to report back to the head coach. So they do have to follow along these protocols. They can't just throw them out and say, I'm not going to do them. But if you understand the healing process and you understand what they're trying to follow from a timeline perspective, you might be able to give them some criteria-based stuff that supports what they already want to do, but accomplishes what we need to do. We need to hit these criteria. We need to check these boxes. I understand that the team physician already said six months. Not a huge fan of that, but can we get this, 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 this done in this order in this time? Because if they're going to have a timeline-based rehab process, I need to put in the criteria-based in between there because that helps give you a little bit more. I know we're supposed to be at six weeks, coach, and we're a little bit behind, but they still can't do this and this. And if you give them a reason why someone's behind or you're talking to the athlete and you're like, yeah, I understand you might be a week or two behind, but did you see your jump scores? That's something we got to get better at. Let's focus on that. Don't focus on where you're supposed to be. Focus on where you are and what you need to get better at, right? So... I think just look at the rehab process and try to understand maybe where your sports medicine professional is coming from, because that's like those, those two things from athletic training to performance, that's where a lot of the butting heads happens is just not understanding the healing process and the athletic trainers not understanding the performance process. So if we can all just agree to learn a little bit more about what the other is doing, then you become, you know, this, this, this team that, you know, is cohesive and together and, you know, you can collaborate a lot easier. Yeah, definitely. So just, like I said, identifying the weaknesses that you did there of each profession and just trying to build upon those to understand each other and then meet that gray area better, I guess, between the two. So I guess that yeah. really, those were, that was a really good summary, I guess, of those two different professions within the college setting, kind of different ways to combat the issue, um, kind of do more closely to what you're doing at, at Louisville. But I guess just uh, I really want to talk about reconditioning and the way you do it there because, like I said, over here it's um, in Australia-wise, they've the strength and conditioning coaches involved a lot more in rehab and they do a lot more of the reconditioning, as you said, and the whole mindset of yeah, look, your ankle's injured, but you still got a whole upper body. There's all the, there's other ways we can condition, condition you. We don't just need to treat that ankle and then that's all you do for the day. So I guess you, just, you would just want to co- go about um, kind of how you do it at Louisville, how you have it set up, and what your mindset is behind reconditioning and the purpose of it and the importance of it and so on. Yeah, I mean, the setup is to have a really great relationship with your sports medicine professional. And, and I am lucky enough to have an athletic trainer who he supports what I want to do and I support what he wants to do. So being able to just – an athlete gets hurt – Let's say they sprain their ankle in practice. Um, we had an athlete not too long ago, like really bad sprained an ankle by herself, just walking in a straight line, boop, ankle gone. Okay, so that day she's in the athletic training room, she's getting treatment, whatnot. I'm going to go check on her. I'm going to go speak with my sports medicine professional. 
Hey Yoshi, what's going on with her? All right, she sprained her ankle. Seems like a grade one. There's some pretty significant swelling in there though. All right, I'm not even gonna come back for another two days. So after two or three days, I check back in. Yoshi, how's the athlete doing? She's doing great. How's that swelling looking? Yeah, it's starting to go down a little bit more. Her range of motion's coming back. Okay, what did you do in rehab today? Well, today we did four-way ankles. Uh, we heated it up. We did this, this, this. We did some manual um, you know, muscle work. We did some you know, joint mobs, whatever, whatever he lists. And then I go, okay, so during practice today, can she get on the bike? Can I take her shoes off and do gait training with her? Can I do some ankle strengthening from a standing position, whether it be calf raises, um, you know, just standing toe curls? Can I have her do some walking on her heels, walking on her toes, lateral walking on her toes? Um, And I'll just start listing off things I want to do. And he'll just go, yep, yep, yep. Oh, I already did that in in the athletic training room today. We already did toe curls. Uh, Could you do something else for her foot? Yeah, I'm just going to have her do all the barefoot walking I could think of. Done. Right. So the reconditioning process, it's, it's really simple. It's, it's a, a trip into the athletic training room every day and just saying, hey, where's this kid at? What did you do today? This is what I was thinking. What do you think about that? And we just try not to double up on things. And so, you know, if it's going to be a long term injury, him and I sit down after practice, you know, when both of us have time and we say, OK, like what's our plan this week? And I'll kind of sketch out what I would want to do during practice. And so he'll go, okay, if that's what you're going to do during practice, then I'm going to do this, this, and this before practice to to prepare them for what it is you want to do. And then I'm going to do this afterward to help them recover. And then they also have a couple different modalities they need to do to help remove some of that edema. Done. So, So the process is work with the people around you. It's a support staff for a reason. And additionally, we have, you know, sports nutrition on staff who, hey, this athlete is going to have surgery in two weeks. Can we get them on you know, probiotics? Can we get them on, you know, maybe some collagen? Can we get them on different things just to try and prepare them for what they're doing? So use sports uh, nutrition if they're around. Use your athletic trainer if they're around. We have, um, you know, mental performance or performance, performance psychology. Sorry, we've changed the name of it a couple times. So, you know, we have uh, sports psychology on call. Hey, this person just really sprained their ankle. It's their first time doing it. Can you come out and just have a, have a chat with them, see how they're doing, manage their expectations about how long this will be or, or when they think they're going to be back. So just utilizing all avenues of the performance team. Like we don't necessarily have one big high performance, like we're all together. Like, no, we have small ones, right? We have like women's basketball high performance model. We have all these people surrounding them. We have lacrosse high performance model. We have all these people surrounding them. So in our own little pods of high performance teams, you know, we can come together and really support that athlete and figure what, figure out what it is they have to do. Sometimes it's not that much. Sometimes it takes a whole village. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think maybe going on that with, you talked about the importance of the staff communicating with one another, but I think another thing, uh, is with, with the athlete specifically talking about how you communicate with them, with showing them that there's you, there's so much to do still no matter what injury you have and as and like you said you can always do something you just need to modify to to keep training and keep progressing so i guess like um what do you usually say to your athletes when they when they come to you injured and they are down and they think they can't train and do this and you know how do you go about that and really open their eyes that there's still so much you can do i mean obviously you need to focus on the injury but you can also still do a lot more than just that yeah, I mean, you have to just switch their mindset, right? Their mindset's going to initially go, oh my gosh, I have an ankle sprain. I can't do this. I can't run. I can't lift. I can't even walk to class without a boot on, right? And so 
the first thing I do is I'm like, listen, you still got an upper body that works just fine. You still got a core and we can still do lower body training. We're just not going to trap our super heavy today. Maybe we just do like barbell RDLs relatively light. So just changing the mindset of like, it's not about what you can't do today. It's about what you can do. But another thing that I think is really important is you need to let athletes be athletes, meaning like they're used to having statistics and numbers driven, like driven by their performance, right? So if I use an example of like uh, lacrosse, like our defenders are really into like ground balls. They're really into, you know, different statistics in terms of like, what can I do to disrupt, you know, the offense? And so they get positive feedback if they get more ground balls, if they get more forced turnovers, um, if they get more clears, meaning they get the ball you know, through the midfield fast. In basketball, it's like, how many rebounds did I get? How many assists did I get? Did I get a teammate you know, three or four shots? How many offensive rebounds did I get? So they're always surrounded by statistics and like performance metrics. So they know what KPIs are for their sport and for their, their certain position. So I just kind of take that. And because they're not going to be getting that, that feedback and that criteria-based information from their sport, I give them that in the weight room. Hey, this week, you know, last week you were able to do an RDL with 95 pounds. I need you to load it up with at least 105 today. You can go heavier if you want, but it still has to look good. Got it? Got it. Right? So now they're starting to get, maybe they're not getting the offensive rebound side, but they're like, oh, I can go up in the weight room. So I'm going to focus on those numbers. Or Katie says, I need to increase my long jump by an inch. Okay. I'm going to do whatever I can to get my long jump up by one inch. Or, you know, Yoshi says I need to be able to get this much knee range of motion and I need to do it twice when I go home. So I'm going to do it three times when I go home. So when I come back and he checks my knee again, I have the range of motion that I want. So surround them with some numbers that are easy to digest that are goal driven or process driven, right? It's not goal driven, but process driven to get to that goal. Like I want to get to this uh, bench press because my ankle hurts. I'm going to go ahead and she says I got to do five by five. I'm going to do five by five. I'm going to go five pounds heavier than what she said. Because athletes want to be athletes. They want to be competitive. They want to perform. They're used to being in a weight room and going hard. So the worst thing I can do is bring them into the weight room and go soft on them and go easy on them because their ankle hurts. No, I'm going to find other ways to to have you face some adversity. I'm going to find other ways to really challenge you so that they're still getting better. They still feel like they had a good workout that day. They still feel like they're a part of the team. The team's lifting. You're in here lifting with us too. Now you might have a different lift, but you're in here lifting with us too. So, you know, I think the worst thing you can do is just baby them and be like, yeah, you got an ankle. Maybe you should just, you know, sit over here during lift and just cheer on your teammates. Like, no, what I do is I'm giving them numbers that they're trying to hit. I'm giving them goals that they're trying to smash. I'm, I'm making it hard on them. I'm not making it easy because athletes want to be athletes. They want to compete. And if they can't get wins on the court, I'm going to find ways to get them wins in the weight room. And it might not be the easiest win. They might still take some losses, but that's part of playing sport. That's part of getting better. And that's part of being a champion. So if they can't get it from here, I'm going to give it to them over there. Yeah. So just shifting the mindset and trying to make them competitive within what they can do, as you said, instead of what they can't do. That's definitely a great point there. Uh, You mentioned beforehand your criteria kind of driven when you're going back for the rehab as it's kind of shifting, it's shifted more towards now anyways. Uh, when, when you develop these criteria for injuries, do you, I guess, do you usually focus on the most common injuries and do you uh, talk with the whole entire staff when you develop these protocols? Or is it, um, I guess, more just you, you will have a chat initially when the injury happens uh, and then go from there? 
Yes and yes, <laughs> right? So, so the conversation always happens when the injury occurs. So you're always going to you know, circle the wagons. Let's talk about this athlete. Let's talk about our plan moving forward. But I think the one, maybe one of the biggest lessons that I learned from Bill Knowles was it doesn't matter if it's uh, an ankle injury, if it's a shoulder injury, if it's a back injury. Every injury is a brain injury. So it doesn't matter what it is. You're going to have to look at their gait mechanics Get them, if they're a field sport, get them back to sprinting. Get them back to changing directions. If it's a knee or an ankle, their criteria looks the same because you need both your knee and your ankle to jump, to lift, to cut, to sprint. So anything from basically the chest down is the same criteria. You just need to be able to hit this, 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 and this. Now I might change it to like some different knee specific stuff, but the overall idea is I'm returning you back to performance. I'm not returning you back to sport. Right. So it's like your performance needs to get back to your athletic normal. You can't be half broken and get back on the field and expect to stay on the field. You're going to come right back off. Easy to get you on the field, hard to keep you on the field. So if it's lower body or even like mid torso, it's the same because you need to be able to control your, you know, your, your torso if you're going to be sprinting, changing direction, throwing, catching, whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing. So it doesn't, the criteria doesn't really need to change when you're looking at big picture, but when you're looking at very specifically, maybe the, the ankle or the knee, yes, you're going to throw a couple things in here or there. And that's where that conversation comes in with, you know, your high performance team of, all right, it's this kid's ankle. It's her first time. What are we really concerned about? Katie, where was she at before she got hurt? Um, you know, if, if it's a lacrosse athlete, we have a data analytics coordinator, Paul Jones, Paul, what was her load tolerance before she got injured? We got to get her back to that before we put her back on the field. So, you know, yes, yes to both. Conversations need to happen, but at the same time, you're still checking the boxes. Are they back to where they were pre-injury? How's the swelling doing? What's their neuromuscular control look like? You know, maybe we put them on the Y-balance test again and just see. Um, What's their load tolerance? We're not going to just put an athlete back on the field that's not done any sort of running or conditioning or any, you know, load buildup in in any way. We're not just going to throw them back out there and hope for the best. But we also talk with the coaches, like during the reconditioning process, like, especially lacrosse, we have a a wonderful head coach who he has kind of set up in his own way. Like when an athlete gets injured and they're coming back through reconditioning, the first nod he gets is from the athletic trainer. So the athletic trainer says, yes, coach, this person uh, sprained their knee last week. They came in and they did this, this, and this. Doc has cleared them. They don't have any gapping in the ligament. It was very minor. They should be good to go. And he goes, Thanks. And then he looks at me and I go, yep, I jump tested her. Her power is the same. Her deceleration is the same. We did some change of direction stuff on the field. Her timing right versus left is within 5%. I'm happy with where she is. He goes, great. And then he looks at our data analytics coordinator and our data analytics coordinator says, yep, she's been running a little bit. She only missed two days of practice. According to her, you know, acute chronic ratios and her ACWR, she should be okay. I might need one or two days to put her in a penny, get her non-contact get her back into the flow of things. I might adjust her meters a little bit. And then after three or four days, coach, she should be good to go. And then he goes, okay. And that's what we do. So he's kind of set it up of like, have they done what you need them to do in athletic training? Yes. Okay. Performance. Have they done what you need them to do? No, they haven't. Their jump test is, is not quite what I need it to be. Meaning they're not confident. They're not able to decelerate. They're not able to produce force um, equally on one side versus the other. Okay. Nope. They're still, they're still over here. You haven't moved on to the next level yet. And so once they clear athletic training, sports performance, and then technically still sports performance, but the data backs up what you're saying, then you can come back on the field. But even then he has put constraints in of, 
you're going to be non-contact until we're really confident that you're able to react and, and take contact and get hit without becoming injured again. So when, when the data supports it and then when his own eyeballs tell him like, yeah, she's looking better, he'll take the penny off and then she's full go. So, hmm. I mean, like not everybody is going to be, is going to have a, a head coach who is that willing to trust the process and really tick all the boxes. But the last thing he wants is an athlete to just be on and off the field all the time, constantly hurt. For him, he understands that if he invests a little bit more time in the front end of the injury, they're going to hopefully stay on the field a heck of a lot longer than if we rush him through the process, get him on, get him off, get him on, get him off. Because we've played that game before, and I think he's learned his lesson. <laughs> Definitely. So, so kind of going back initially, when looking and meeting with the athlete, you kind of start, you have maybe like your big pieces you focus on, and then you have that communication, like that, that's set in stone, your big pieces you focus on, and then you have that initial communication when the ish- injury happens and focus on the smaller things to then build back up to the bigger things. And then, so I guess kind of building off of the last question or last thing you spoke upon with having that good coach, uh, obviously that sounds like a good coach, but when you have someone that you don't give a timeline for, because usually they know when can they be back and it's harder to just say when they can jump like this. Okay, well, when is that? How would you go about kind of approaching that situation? Because obviously, yeah, to us it makes sense, or in more of the sports medicine, sports performance setting, it makes sense you need to do this before you can get back, but they want a date, you know, because games and so on matter. Right. So, I mean, an example would just be kind of what I was dealing with yesterday. So in on lacrosse, we have two athletes that are coming back from hip labral surgery. And so, you know, both of them, we do jump testing, um, you know, linear, lateral, single leg, double leg. I just want to compare right versus left. And then I also want to compare right versus right. So we jump them every two, one to two weeks. Um, so they'll get better at the jump testing as they do it. But I also am able to kind of compare like there's a minimum, uh, you know, relative strength index I want you to get to in this movement. And then I want to compare not only are you at the minimums, but are you equal or very close to being equal bilaterally? Anything over 10%, and I'm like, no, you've got an asymmetry we're going to have to address here. But we have two athletes coming back from labrum. They had surgery at different times. And, you know, every surgeon goes, yeah, this is a six-month injury. It's not a big deal. Or this is a 12-month injury. It is what it is. So they're already, they already have in their head how long it should be. And then due to quarantine this year, both of these athletes were getting physical therapy at home before they were able to come on campus in August and get back under the care of our high-performance team. So they've been told all these timelines already. Hey, you should be running. When you get back to Louisville, you need to run in two weeks. Well, both of them came back to Louisville and they were told that they were supposed to be running because they're at the four-month mark or you know whatever it is. And my athletic trainer and I just sat them down and was like, hey, listen, you're not running until you can do this, this, and this. And we'll test those things. And if they don't score well in those tests, you just ask the athlete. You're like, so do you really want to run still? Because your plyometrics are lacking you don't have the strength to do this, this, and this, and you know maybe something else we're going to list. But you don't have these yet, so like you're not ready to run. If you run, there's a very good chance that we're going to re-injure something going on in those hips. Do you want to chance that? And normally they just go, no. So if you, if you show them why it is that we're doing and you show them their numbers, right? Athletes want to be athletes. They're used to seeing the statistics from their sport. Give them the statistics from their performance. You need to be able to squat this percentage of your body weight. You need to be able to do single leg strength of this, this, and this. You need to be able to jump with a relative strength index of this, this, and this. And you need to, be, you need to run through a plyo progression. You can't start running before you do plyos. That's silly. So, you know, if you explain to them the criteria that you're looking for, 
even if they have a timeline in their head, initially both of them were like, oh man, like I thought I was going to get to run when I came here. And we said, listen, you will when you earn the right. You got to do the work. And when you do this, this, and this, we'll start running. And they did. And they both were technically behind. But once they were able to do those three things and they got to run, it was like a win. Like, boom, big check, like, uh, big check mark. I don't care that I'm a couple weeks behind. I'm running again. All right, so now I can get my stick in my hand. What can I do, right? And so then it, their mindset just starts to change. As long as you give them goals that are obtainable, like, okay, you're really close to getting this one. I just need you to push really hard the next two weeks to try and hit this fitness marker. They're going to they're gonna forget about the timeline and they're gonna just going to really focus on whatever criteria basis you're going to give them. And before they know it, it's like, Once you get near the end and they're starting to really look good, I had a conversation with both of them of like, hey, listen, we're about to go home for winter break. You both are very, very close to getting back on the field with a penny on, which means that's like their second to last stage from getting back into full team practice. And I mean, they both had surgery months and months and months ago. So they're really excited about that. So I did give them the, hey, if you work really hard when you're home and you can jump this and you can sprint this and your change of direction drills look like this, and your fitness is here, I'll tell coach you can put a penny on. But if you don't do those four things, I'm not going to do that. And you understand why. And they go, yes. So they understand I have to do this in order to get this. It is like a hard work reward system. And you don't punish them. It's not a punishment if you don't get to run. It's a you don't get the reward until we can get this done. And they understand that like their health and well-being and their performance is my main job. It's why I'm here. So I'm not just being mean and keeping them out. I'm trying to keep them healthy. And they understand that like, if I say it's not safe to go back or the athletic trainer says it's not safe to go back, they're not going to like, oh, I don't think you're right. I think I'm going to go do it anyway. <laughs> Most of the time when you tell them that and you're like, listen, your health and well-being are my main, my main goal. I want you to get back on the field and stay on the field because I don't want to have to do this again in six months. They go, yeah, I don't want to have to do this again in six months either, especially when it's a big, long injury, like a nine month, you know, hip, hip labrum repair. <laughs> Definitely. So, yeah, explaining, I guess, as you said, with the numbers and letting them compete and be athletes again and understanding that they have the best, uh, you have the best um, in mind for them. I guess what happens, though, with a lot of the college programs that do not have the resources to get all of the data that you um, to get those numbers and all the specific data, whether that be GPS or um, force plates or so on. Do you have any recommendations to kind of combat that? Um, I guess I, you know, I know it doesn't have to be super as specific as in you know something for each one, but just some general tips that you would go about uh, that doesn't have as big a budget for the small smaller division schools. Yeah, and I mean we're really blessed at the University of Louisville to you know have enough catapult units to put it on every field sport athlete and our women's basketball teams, right? So, and I understand that not every school is going to have that uh, kind of a budget. However, that is only a small piece of the numbers that we're collecting on our athletes. So most of the numbers that I collect are not on a force plate; they're on a jump mat. I think most of us have a jump mat, or you know you can you can just do the old jump and you know if you wanted to do vertical jump testing, our strength testing, you know you got to count plates. <laughs> like that, you, you don't need a big budget for that, right? How, mu- how much did they lift versus how much, you know, do they weigh? Give me a relative strength. Give me an absolute strength, whatever it is you're looking for. Um, but towards the end stages, like if you don't have a way to monitor external load, that can definitely be really daunting for the late stages of reconditioning. But um, kind of something that we do at Louisville, and I had mentioned it before with our, our lacrosse coach, is we kind of have four stages of getting back onto the field. So I think everybody understands in the weight room, this is how you measure things. Uh, in terms of fitness, if you do a fitness test, this is how you measure things. 
If you are doing, you know, power testing, we're going to do vertical jump. This is how you measure it. So I think we have a really firm understanding on that. And that does not need a big budget. You can figure out a way to do it. When you're talking about getting them back on the field of play, whatever their sport is, you know, if you can't monitor externally, you can definitely do a session RPE, right? You can measure the amount of time that they're on the field, give them an RPE scale, and then you multiply the two together. So you can kind of have an idea of how much work that athlete did. Um, It's subjective, which isn't great, but it has been validated. Um, So you can always do that. And then what we also do is we have four stages of getting back out of the field. Okay, so once the athlete has cleared what we need to get done, they're ready to get back on the field, they've cleared the running progressions. The first thing we do is we do programmed restricted work. So programmed and restricted would be something like a change of direction drill, a 5-10-5. It's programmed, you know where you're going, and it's restricted. You have to stop at this cone and turn back and go that way. There's no decision making being done. So change of direction drills, um, for lacrosse, it would be like a passing line. Like you're going to catch the ball, you're going to throw it, you're going to run to the end. You're going to catch the ball, you're going to throw it, you're going to run to the end. So programmed restricted work. And you do that for, I mean, it depends on the injury, how long they've been out. If they've been out for a significant amount of time, you got to do that longer. If they've only been out for a couple weeks, maybe you do that for one or two days. And then you move on to the next section, which is going to be programmed unrestricted. So that's going to be um, like in basketball, it would be five on O offense. So you know the play that we're trying to run, but there's a lot more creativity you're allowed to have within it, but it's still in a safe environment. So it's programmed, you know what play we're running, but you can cut back door, you can shoot the three, you can ball fake and pass it back up top, right? So finding things where like, they're still gonna be in a programmed setting, there's not a lot of decision going on, but they're allowed to have a little bit more creativity. They're allowed to pretty much do as much of that as they can do. So as long as the passing lines are going on and the five on no offense is going on, they could be on the field. I don't need to pull them off at any time. Or if it starts to get too crazy, I don't got to pull them off. Then the third stage is unprogrammed restricted. So now we're talking about uh, maybe a soccer player who's wearing a neutral jersey. And that's what we do with our lacrosse athletes also. So neutral jersey means I'm on offense all the time. I get to score all the goals, right? So unrestricted, I'm sorry, unprogrammed restricted. Unprogrammed, there's decisions that need to be made. But you only get to play in maybe a five-on-five setting. You don't get to play 11v11 if you're a soccer player. Or you only get 10 minutes of being a neutral. So you're only offense. So you have to make decisions, but you don't have to react like as if you were on defense. And then the last one would be unprogrammed, unrestricted, and that's practice. You take the penny off. There's contact. They're able to do what they want to do. You still might manage maybe some of their minutes or you know, some of the drills that they're doing if you don't want them doing the full practice. But they're allowed to make decisions, they're allowed to be reactive, they're allowed to be athletes, and you, you just spend X amount of time in each of those four zones just to phase them back into whatever sport it is that they're trying to play. Because I think we all know, like, if you don't play a sport for a while, then you jump right back in. It's like the sport sped up five times. And, you know, there's decisions being made, and the ball's flying around, you're like, holy crap, this is fast. So if you can just slowly get them back into those four phases until they're unprogrammed and unrestricted, that's going to help the athlete build confidence, build their load tolerance. It's going to safely return them back to some contact and some decision-making. It's going to slow the game down for them a little bit. Um, So hopefully they can stay on the field and not get re-injured again because they weren't ready to just jump right back into full practice. Yeah, okay. So you don't have to – obviously, like I said, weight's easy to measure and then other simple things, RP and so on, other ways to just get around getting some sort of data that doesn't cost a bunch of money. And then having, you know, not measuring every meter, but having those four different phases gives you the ability to sort of track and ease back in with uh, the the best um, monitoring as possible without having actual GPS. 
Well, yeah, right. yeah, great, great points there. Um, I guess do you just want to give maybe a quick minute or so summary on I guess the main takeaways you think you would you would want people to get from this episode, and then we can kind of finalize it there. Oh, you're asking me to like summarize an hour in a minute. <laughs> I don't you know, know that's tough. That. Try to end it on um, a hard one. I think I think athletic trainers be interested in the weight room want to learn maybe some of those progressions that we just weren't taught initially go out of your way to be uncomfortable and i think you're going to see massive returns on investment you're going to feel much more confident in what you're doing in the reconditioning process but it's also going to help your ability to communicate with your strength and conditioning professionals strength and conditioning professionals learn the rehab process learn the healing process so that you can understand where athletic trainers are coming from and the education base that they have and why they are going to be overly protective sometimes of an athlete returning back into a weight room, right? So if you if you learn a little bit about the other profession, you can kind of change from this protection mindset to this preparation mindset. I'm never gonna do harm to an athlete, right? Do no harm is always gonna be our goal, but we do have to prepare them for the sport. So there is gonna have to be some compromise in the middle where some of the protection is gonna have to be removed and some of the preparation is gonna have to be brought back so that load intolerant athlete has the best chance to get on the field and stay on the field. Because at the end of the day, we're all on the same team. We're all trying to get these athletes back and healthy. And I think we're all here to win more games. And if you and I can work together to accomplish that in a more efficient way, that's in the best possible way for the athlete, I think we all win and hopefully we win more games. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, thanks for being on. If you just want to shout out where um, people can follow you or contact you if they have any questions um, or if you have any social medias that you share things on, I can put those in the show notes. Yes. So you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter where UofL Performance. And my own personal is at Katie Jones. That's Instagram and Twitter. So you can check out um, UofL Performance. Their website is Cardinals Performance. And on there, we have mentorship opportunities and a little bit about our staff, our mission, vision, values, and kind of what we stand for. So if there are any athletic trainers that are interested in you know, finding a mentorship opportunity, check out the website. We'd love to have you. Awesome. Really appreciate it, Katie. Thanks for being on. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. This is fun. Thank you for listening to No Weak Links. If you've enjoyed the show and would be able to leave a five-star review on iTunes, that would be much appreciated as it would help the show reach more people. I also provide free strength and conditioning and injury and rehabilitation content on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood, on Facebook at Coach Patrick Wood, on Twitter at Coach Patty Wood, and on my website www.patrick-wood.com. All of this can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening.